We are uh, in a passage of Scripture this morning that is uh, probably, and I don't mean this lightly, this is probably one of the most crucial passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, This is the passage of setting some things up for the future that uh, are very, very important to our faith, not only to our faith as Gentiles, but to the Jewish faith as well. And this Scripture, this chunk of passage, it has so many commentaries written on it. It has so many different versions of it. And we don't have the time to dive into all of the Davidic covenant. But this morning, we are going to hit this idea of what happens when God says no to your plans. And I know you've never been there, but just imagine that you've made plans. You've got these great plans in in your heart and in your mind, and you want to do something, and God says no. And so the question is, what happens when the plans we work so hard to accomplish don't pan out? Or God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, What happens, especially when you, you, you feel like you're on the right track, like you've done the right things, you've, 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 you're at the peak of your career, you're at the peak of your life, and, and you're like, man, things are really going well. I think God wants me to make this move, and it's a really God-honoring move, and, and then all of a sudden you realize there's a no right in the middle of it. I had this experience um, right out of Moody. Uh, I was looking for a youth ministry job as I graduated, and there was an opportunity to work actually at Maranatha, uh, and Steve Marshall, who was the youth pastor at the time, uh, was looking for an intern, and my wife knew him, had grown up there, and, and there was this huge opportunity to say, man, I would love to just learn youth ministry under Steve and, and just kind of be a, a part of Maranatha and the whole thing, and so it was between me and one other guy, Right. And uh, we talked, and we had really good interview, and I thought, this is really going to happen. This is fantastic. And uh, I remember the phone call came through, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a given. I've got an in with Carrie. I've got an in with Maranatha now. We're going to be easy. And I remember the phone call came back, and it was like, uh, we're going to go with somebody else. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And the reason was um, that... Um, which is actually really true. They said, you and Steve are too much alike and we can't have two of you in the same place. So we need to kind of bring somebody the not Steve into this scenario. And so I was like, that's fine. I understand. But I remember at that point in my life, I was, feel like I was like riding the wave, right? I mean, I just finished Moody, ministry was on the horizon, and then there's this resounding, mm, no, Right? And it was just, I felt like I was on the right thing. I prayed about it. I searched God and I said, man, what is it? And, and yet still there was just this resounding no. And so I think if you've been there before, you're on the right track and still going to know. Uh, I think it's when the plans um, don't go the way we think they should, uh, especially when it comes to God's plans. I think we can fall into a couple different categories this morning. And so this may be you. Uh, if, if you feel like you've heard a no from God, um, one of the categories you can fall into is you can be so sure of God's plan that you make it happen on your own. Anybody been there before? Uh, God said no, but I'm still going to make it happen on my own. I've got enough ability, enough skill set that I can make this happen, um, which I've been there before as well. Some of us, when we hear God's plans, we have no idea uh, what God's plans are for our lives, and so we just kind of meander around and hope that we kind of hit the target somewhere. Some of us have some idea of what God's plan is, but if we're honest, we're not sure that we're on the right track when it comes to God's plan for our life. Some of us, when it comes to God's plan for our life, are confused, and so we do the best we can with what we know, right? I mean, many of us are probably in that camp. I think God has me where he wants me. I think I'm in the church I'm supposed to be in. I think I'm on the right track, and I think I'm supposed to be going this way. 
And then there's some of us who are scared of what God's plans are, so we don't even ask. <laughs> um, I've been there before too, right? Um, where you don't want to know the answer, and so you assume the theological game is that if I don't ask, he doesn't have to deal with it, right? <laughs> if I don't ask, then he doesn't, you know, have to say no. And so if I just avoid him long enough, then I can do my own plan, um, which isn't true either. And we're going to see this morning that um, even at our best, God-honoring plans and all, we may receive a no from God. And it may break our heart. It may be something that we don't want to hear. But David is in a situation this morning where he has a plan. It's a good plan. It's a God-honoring plan. And yet he'll still receive a no. And you'll see this morning that he handles this no with humility and responsibility. And I think those are two key words we're going to talk about this morning is humility in in God's plan and the responsibility So you're going to see two things this morning. I'm going to give these up front. You're going to see that in the humility, David does a great job in humility this this chapter. He fails miserably in the next chapter. But in this chapter, he handles it well. You'll see humility of God in this chapter. You'll see the responsibility of David in this chapter. And you're going to see a huge and amazing God-honoring responsibility of God in this chapter as well. So let's dive in together this morning and see where we're, we're heading. This morning, I said, as we gather, we're going to see David at his best. Things are on point. David is at the top of his game. So imagine he has gone through all these things, and now he's at the top of his game. The country's at peace. He's set financially. And the picture would look like this. If there was an arc of David's life, he is on the pinnacle heading into 2 Samuel 7. So he's just been anointed king over Judah. The tribes unite in chapter 4. He's anointed king in chapter 5 over all the tribes. Last week, Adam did a great job talking about the idea of the ark being brought forward and the worship, and, and, and he's just very close to God. The presence of God is in Jerusalem. I mean, that's crazy to think about that God himself was in the city of Jerusalem. You couldn't get better times than this. And so we come into this scenario in chapter 7, and here's your context. I want you to picture David and his, his pastor. So it's David and his pastor who is basically giving him all the spiritual guidance he needs as king. And they are on top of a roof somewhere, as in my thought, and it's not there, so I'm using, I'm using a little bit of imagination here. But I imagine they're sitting on top of this rooftop. It's gorgeous. And they're just kind of watching and looking over their entire kingdom And they're sipping back on tea or whatever they're drinking. And they're just kind of hanging out on top of this roof. And they're just like, this is awesome. Like life is good, right? It's that day, it's like the third or fourth day into vacation after all the chaos has ensued. And you just sit and you're just like, we made it to vacation, right? It's just everything is good with the world and everything is set and, and they have this scenario and that's where they're at and sitting on top of this roof and they have this dialogue then sitting there talking about all that has happened in verse one through three and that's where we begin, verses one through three. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, so this is Nathan, prophet, pastor of the king uh, in this thing. So he's basically the spiritual advisor to the king. See now, he says, this is David talking to Nathan. See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
So, right, I mean, there's having a dialogue. He's looking at all he has, and he's like, man, look at what I'm living in. Look at the plush surroundings that I have. My life is on point right now. I could not get any better. And then he looks, and he, he looks at this little ark kind of thing that God's kind of residing in, and he's kind of like, God's living in there, and yet I'm living here. And so he says, I want to build a temple to God himself. And this is a good plan, Right? This is a God-honoring plan. This isn't selfish. This is what he wants to do to honor God. And, and Nathan, without even talking to God, which is interesting, right? The pastor just kind of pipes in. I don't know if it was like a yes man moment or what, but it was kind of like, yeah, let's do that. You should definitely do that. Let's go ahead and build this temple. And then you read a little further on in verse 4 through 7, the humility of God and the humility of uh, plans that don't quite make, make it out. So verse 4. By that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So basically he's talking about here that in the wilderness, he was living in the tent, right? The tent of meeting and the tabernacle and that whole thing was there. And he says, in all these places where I have moved with all of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is so good. This is where I think sometimes God's a little more sarcastic than we give him credit for. Um, He kind of has this conversation with David, and he's like, Do you think I need a house to live in? Um, Do you think I kind of need a little space that's just my own with my recliner and my TV and my, how many bathrooms should it have? Should it have a living room, bedroom? How's my backyard look? Is it manicured? Does True Green come and spray the thing? Like, what kind of house do you really think God could live in? And I think so often it's kind of a crazy question, but it's a, a humbling question where he says, if I needed a house, I would have a house. Isn't that great? Your God says of us, if I really wanted to jack your life up, I'd jack your life up. If I really wanted to make your life like the easiest thing in the world, I would do that. If I was truly the almost powerful being in all of the world, I can do what I want. So if you think that I need a house, I could have said house. I mean, I spoke stars into existence for crying out loud. So if I say star and all of a sudden a ball of gas appears in the, the sky thousands and millions of light years away and he just says star, he says, I could probably say house and there would be a house for me. And David is taken back, and he's like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. I wasn't really trying to get in your spot. I'm just saying it was a nice thing to do. And David was thinking like other people in, his hist- in the time of history where they would do the same thing. So in, in the historical context, here's what would happen whenever a, a god wanted to be honored with a temple. Uh, one of these was actually... Uh, King Tut himself, uh, about 300 years before David, built a temple to Amun-Ra, and, and this was something historically, it's, anyway, it's all archaeological digs and all those kind of things. But here's what would happen, even in the pagan world, let alone for David. The king, first step would be the king builds their god a nice house. King Tut did it, others did it, they just built this great temple, and they would say, here's your house, now you move in. Moving day is, you know, this day, and you just kind of bring all your stuff in, it's God kind of lives in the house. 
And then uh, number two, the second step is the temple makes their God famous. And so as they build this temple, people see that this temple's there. They start asking questions about the temple. Who lives in that temple? Oh, my God lives in that temple. Oh, that's kind of cool. It's a nice neighbor to have in your allotment. And so he lives there, and then the temple makes their God famous. And then step three is God thanks the king by blessing their kingdom. And so what they believed was if I build this temple to Amun-Ra, then basically then they will be nice to me and they will give me all the good things that I want to have because I was nice and I built them a temple. uh, And that's kind of how it went. David, I don't think, was saying that. But I think oftentimes our own theology can reflect that, right? If I do the thing for God that he wants me to do, then the contract says, I did the good thing. The contract says, you owe me for doing the good thing. So therefore, I'll expect the good thing. And then when we don't see the good thing, we wonder what happens. Because in our transactions, we just think, you know, hey, if I spent intentional time with my neighbor, then obviously the blessing should come because I spent the right thing and I did the right thing. And that's not always the way it works. Because to quote... Um, one of the favorite authors, and I, I have to apologize because I had this quote written down on my phone and it's been there for a while and I don't have the author's name. So I'm just going to give it to you. This is not me. Um, but I thought this was a great point. He says, if Christ is followed only because his gifts are great and his threats are terrible, he is not glorified by his followers. A defective Lord can offer great gifts and terrible threats. And that's so true. Any defective God out there can, can offer great gifts and give you terrible threats. And a person may want the gifts, they, fe- they fear the threats, and they follow a Lord who they despise, or even worse, they follow a God who they pity or find boring or embarrassing in order to have the gifts and avoid the threats. If Christ is to be glorified in his people, their following must be rooted not daily in his promised gifts or threatened punishments, but in his glorious person. I was like, wow, that is so true. That is so my life at times. And I just feel like I, I, I do this because I want the rewards. I do this because I'm scared of the punishment. And, and he's saying, if Christ is truly to be honored, if God was truly to be honored by this temple, then it's only because of who God is. It's his character to which we follow, not the things he does for us but his glorious person. That's why I love the song anthem we just did earlier. It speaks of that idea, of this idea of following Jesus because of who he is. So they have the scenario, they, they, they're told no by God. He says, you're, not gonna, you're, you're kind of not the guy for this thing. He'll go here in just a second. But the generosity of God flips the order with David. So in other words, David wants to build the house. He wants to be super generous to God. God flips this thing on its head and goes into the most powerful passage that we have in, well, one of the most powerful passages we have in the entire Bible. And this is what is called the Davidic covenant. And the generosity of God flips the order. Instead of king builds God a nice house, temple makes their God famous, God thanks king by blessing their kingdom, he flips it. And with David, he says, God builds David a house, God makes David famous, and the king thanks God for their blessings. Does that make sense? He completely reverses it. He says, I'm going to make your house famous. I'm going to make you famous. And as a result of me making you famous, all I want in return is just your appreciation, your praise, your honor, your worship back in return. And so that's where we pick up in verse 8 to 17. So let me read this section. It's a little longer, but this is important for us to understand um, biblically to have a good look at this. So let me just read 8 to 17. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, so he's speaking to Nathan here, thus say the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince. That's a key word. Highlight, circle that word prince. That you should be prince over my people Israel. Because if David's the prince, who's the king? Not your question. Say Jesus, God. Good, 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 God. God is, is the answer. Good? So Jesus' answer would have fit there. Yes, God is the king. David is the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. That's crazy. He gets better. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be, distur- I'm sorry, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days uh, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of of his kingdom forever. Circle the word forever, that's important. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast has said, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away, who I put away from before you. And verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, another use of it, before me. Your throne shall be established, again, forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. This section from 8 to 17 is what is known as the Davidic Covenant. And just a little bit of Bible history so you can kind of be upright on your, on your theology here. Uh, a quick look at covenants is this. In the Bible, there are certain covenants. And covenants were basically commitments from God that he was not going to break promises. You saw it in creation in Genesis 1 also known as the Edemic Covenant, but the Creation Covenant is in Genesis 1 and 2. Then you have the Noahic Covenant, or the Noah Covenant, which is Genesis 6 through 9, that he will never flood the earth again, the rainbow thing. That's an important covenant that we still have in play today. You have the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And in that Abrahamic Covenant, he welcomes us to accept Jesus Christ by faith and not by law. That's an interesting one. The Abrahamic Covenant is there in Genesis 12. The Israelite Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, is Exodus 19 to 23. And that is where you get your Ten Commandments. And then you have the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 33. If you were to take time and study each of these covenants, you would see something unique about each one of them, but you would also see something the same about each one of them. And the thing that you would find the same is that this is not kind of a, 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 a cell phone plan or a contract that way that are initiated by a company, and then if you fall through on your end, then the company's going to come and bill you and, and basically you know, get you for all your overages and things like that. This is not that kind of contract. This was a contract fulfilled by God himself. This is a contract that he gives to humanity that will never expire. They will never show up as uh, the monthly charges if you would. And they've been paid for fully by God himself. They have been secured and they will be honored. And each one of those covenants has a, has a, has a meaning to it. And the Davidic covenant is, is the same. The Davidic covenant is very, very important. And so let me give you a couple highlights then of the Davidic covenant because you need to know this if you're going to understand the rest of the New Testament and anything beyond Second Samuel chapter 7. First off, highlights is this. It secured David's name. So the first thing the Davidic covenant did is it secured David's name as being the only king to which God promised he would have a ruler on the throne forever. 
We're going to get into how that works in just a second because we're like, well, is the, now is the guy who's, you know, in charge of Jerusalem now, like the whole prime minister or Israelite thing, is he line of David? Like, how does that work? And we'll talk about it in a second. He secured in David's name. Uh, he secured Israel's position as being God's people. So in this covenant, he says, I will secure the name of Israel. They will always be my people and I will never forsake them. That's crazy. I will never forsake them. Even when the Israelites turn from me, I will always be good to the people of Israel. And then he promised in verse, uh, the second, third part of this is he promised Jesus out of this, which obviously you don't see that here. You don't read in here. And the third part is I will promise you Jesus. That's not in there, but you're going to see that in just a second. And then lastly, he established an eternal home for all of us. So the Davidic covenant, four things. One, it secured the David's name. Two, it secured Israel's position. Three, it promised Jesus. And fourth, it established an eternal home for us today, right here, right now. An eternal home played out for all this. And all this gets played out um, through many passages of Scripture, but let's just kind of unpack this a little bit so you can kind of understand the Davidic covenant. Promises fulfilled in David's lifetime. So there are certain things that he's going to secure David's name, and there are certain promises that were fulfilled in David's lifetime. So if you were to look at 7, 8 through 11a, now therefore he says, I took you from the pasture from following sheep that you should be the prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. That happened. That all is true. That was part of David's life. He gave him uh, this great name. So that's the first piece here. He says, this happened in David's lifetime. He had a great name. Everybody knew who David was. He goes on and he says, uh, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I will, make your great, I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And he goes into this thing where he says, I've set a firm place for Israel's people of God. And he set up this land in this place, and he says, this will be a place for Israel. And if you look today, even now, 2019 into 2020, it is crazy when you look at a little chunk of Israel, and you look at what's around Israel to think that that place is still in existence today. I mean, if you look at all the nations around it that just hate Israel and just want to take it off the map, to know that that is still there today is insane and proof, I believe, that God said something 2,000 years ago and he's still fulfilling the promise today. It's a crazy, crazy thing. So if you think God's slow in timing, he may be. But at the same time, I look at it as he's patient with all of us and that's where he's at today. A firm place for Israel, that, that, that establishment happened in David's lifetime. Israel was established during David's lifetime. Third thing is he rest. He gave David rest, rest for David from his enemies. This is also uh, part of what's happened to David in his lifetime. He has been free from all his enemies. He is sitting in his palace. He's had this conversation with Nathan, and life is awesome. Life is good again, and now he's just spending time free from all these things. Then you see that there's also promises in the Davidic covenant, stick with me, there's promises in this covenant as well for things that would be fulfilled after David's death, okay? And so this would be the eternal house that he talks about uh, later on in this passage where he talks about there's to be a house for your kingdom in this verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So these kind of eternal home, this eternal house was promised after David's life. This kingdom... Uh, would be established, there was an eternal kingdom would come out of this promise of God. And this eternal kingdom would look very different than the way most people would think an eternal kingdom would look. And lastly, he gave David, after his life, an eternal throne. 
In other words, there is an eternal king reigning right here, right now at this time. He is reigning over heaven and earth, and he has an eternal throne, and this is part of the promise given to David. This could be, and here's the thing, this could be played out in two ways, right? This eternal promise of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, this could be played out in two ways. So let's just kind of not dive in too quick into what we know. Let me just kind of give you the two scenarios that I think could be played out if you're going to give somebody an eternal kingdom. Option A, God would get, give every descendant from David on, every descendant a male heir forever securing the house, kingdom, and throne, right? So the logical thing would say, from the line of David, David would get, get a, a son, a son, a son, a son, a son, a son, and all throughout history to the point that we would trace it all the way to today and we'd say there is an eternal king uh, reigning in Israel and the king that is the prime minister, whatever there now is directly related to David. That isn't the case, but, but that is the thing that he says could be a way of God accomplishing it, right? The logical thing would say, I'm going to establish an heir and this is going to take over. Much like um, other reigns throughout history, um, Bulgaria that boasts of a 2,890-year reign, Japan dynasty that has a 2,669 bloodline. Okay, those kind of bloodlines are there and they're historical, but that is not what he's going to talk about here in a second. Because the other option, as he said, I could do this that way, but you'd be like every other kingdom and every other dynasty, but I'm going to do something different. My, I'm going to give you an eternal king. And this is a descendant who would be born who would never die. So in other words, he could say, I could keep giving you king after king after king after king, or I could make a king that would be human from the line of David who will never die, who has the opportunity to be an eternal house, eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So let's just trace the hand of God because we all know, hopefully this morning if you don't know, that he did do that. He sent an eternal king and he put him in the line of David. So let's just kind of trace this throughout history. 2 Samuel 7 talks about the promise that there will be an eternal king. From there we go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 promises that there will be an eternal king. This king will be of God himself. And then we go to Isaiah 55.3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He talks about this covenant that will be unending, and it's going to be coming. And then we see the fulfillment of this promise thousands of years later in Luke chapter 1, 31 to 33. And behold, you will receive, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. That's awesome. Can you imagine God coming to you and saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to be sending the son of God through your family. That's amazing. And he says in this promise, in Luke 1, 31 to 33, every single one of those promises come true. Number one, if an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, an eternal home, all these are part of this eternal king promised. In Acts 2, 29 to 36, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw 
saw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says to himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's words at Pentecost speak of an eternal kingdom from the line of David who is Jesus. Hebrews 12, you want more proof? Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Zion was the city that David named Jerusalem. He named it Zion. And Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. The word forever is listed seven times in chapter, in chapter seven, and that is on purpose. God is saying to David, and he's saying to us, please remember, my promises take a long time. They are forever. They are for eternity. And the promise that David was given here, we have access to by faith in Jesus Christ that we can serve an eternal king on an eternal throne. Hearing this amazing news, David responds. And here's where you see David's humility because God has just shown his humility, right? God has just shown his humility in the fact that he gave David everything. What kind of God does that who gives him everything and promises an eternal throne and doesn't break a single promise that he gives in scripture? He is faithful again and again and again. And David responds how we all should respond in verse 18 to 21. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord, And what is my, circle highlight, house, right? See the word house kind of thrown back and forth again? David's like, okay, I thought my kingdom was impressive. I've just heard that you're going to make an eternal kingdom. This kingdom is like the sandcastle that my kids made when they were two, right? Compared to, and it was a great sandcastle, don't get me wrong. It was awesome. But it was nothing compared to the home and the house that is eternal by Jesus Christ. Who am I? That, what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction of mankind, O Lord God. I love verse 19. You, you said of this promise of an eternal kingdom that would come through the Son of God, emptying himself and coming to earth and dying in our place and rising from the dead and, and, and living forever and setting up a throne and a kingdom. And I love David's words. Let's not miss the prophecy that has been fulfilled in verse 19, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. (laughs) You serve a God who is far more powerful, I think, than we give him credit for on a given day. You serve a God who is far larger in his plans than your plans ever will be. We have really good plans. God, you understand, my, my plans are really important. You need to follow my way of doing things. And when God says no, we turn to this verse 19 and say, yet this is a small thing. This promise, this covenant was a small thing. So when we say, God, you need to do what I need you to do, we need to kind of step back and we need to kind of say, okay, whoa, I understand there's a bigger plan at play because if you're setting up David to be a kingdom of eternal gratitude, this this whole thing, I need to be humble enough to understand this. So verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord, because of your promise and according to your own heart, that's so good, because of your promise, 
Don't miss the pronouns. Be, I could be here a while. This, this is why this passage is long. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Wow. I don't think, this is, this is like worship on a whole other level. This is, God, this is the understanding of how small David is and how big his God is. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. You see, he responds with gratitude. He responds with praise. In verses 22 to 29, he continues on in this magnificent prayer of gratitude. And in this prayer, he mentions the name of God, I think probably close to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different ways. And each one of these names that he gives in this section from 22 to 29 is a name that is meant to represent the proper name of God, which is the kingly name of God. It was also meant to reflect the mighty power of God. The word Elohim is used throughout this passage. And then he uses the word Adonai, which means he is sovereign. He is all-knowing. And so David, in his response of gratitude, understands what's at stake and praises God for each piece of the promise. I thank you for being a king. I thank you for being all-powerful that you can make this happen. And I thank you for being sovereign enough that you can pull this promise off. You see, I think what happens in our own lives is, is we don't understand the character of God. We just understand the rules of God. We don't understand the heartbeat of God, and so we often just kind of get bored with him. Because, because it's just not happening fast enough or it's not working quick enough. And we don't follow God because it's, it's the, the thing to do. We follow God because he's the only one worthy of following. And we follow God best when we know his character and his heart best. David didn't follow him and say, thank you for this great kingdom. This is awesome. I'm going to just live it up in this kingdom. He says, I thank you for being sovereign, powerful king over all of this. And who am I but a small, small person in all of these things? And David trusts God to keep his promise in this chapter. We not only see the humility of David in his response, but we also see the responsibility of David. And this is crucial. That even when God says to David that you're not going to build the temple, this comes a little later on, he basically says you're not going to be the one to do this. I don't need this, right? We talked about that earlier. He says this is going to come in verse 15. He says I'm going to give it to your son. He's going to do this. And and Solomon's going to end up building the temple. We see that in verses 14 and 15 throughout there. I I will give you this. This isn't going to happen to you. So he says no to David. In the midst of saying no to David, David doesn't just kind of take his toys and go home. (laughs) Fine, then I'll just not build you a temple. See how you like that, right? He doesn't do that. He, he responds with gratitude. And then lastly, we see that he prepares and, and, and does due diligence to set Solomon up well. This is, this is so fun. First Chronicles 22, 2 to 5. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided a great quantities of iron for nails for the doors and gates and for clamps, as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing. 
and cedar timbers without number. And the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparations for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. People who understand God well are okay when God passes them up and says, not your turn. I'm going to send somebody else. Your son's going to build this. David didn't get upset. He didn't kind of just hoard all his stuff. He set his son up for success. As Swindoll says in his book, David, he says, he didn't say, I will, I will back off and I will say to God, magn-. he says, David said to God, I will back off and I will say to God, magnify your name through the efforts of another. That's hard to do. That's hard when God doesn't pick you, when your plan turns out to be a no. One of the hardest things to hear is that God is going to use someone else to accomplish something you thought was your objective. It's terrible. It's hard. One of the most courageous and obedient things, though, that you can do is to submit yourself to the coach, to the king, and say, okay, it's not, I'm not running the play. You're putting in so-and-so on this play. Okay. Wouldn't been my choice, you know, that guy, really. We're not on the sidelines hoping he fails, although we've been there before maybe, some of us, right? You put them in, you're like, this guy's going to totally do it. And you're just waiting for the thing to fail. David didn't do that. He heard the coach. The coach said, David, you're sitting on the bench this play. We're running him in. He's going to run the play. He's our running back right now. You just sit and wait. He didn't get mad. He didn't pout. He was humble. And he set that guy up for success. In other words, he was the greatest teammate you could ever have. He's just setting the sun up and saying, run, man, run. You're going to nail this play. You're going to do awesome. And I think God's asking us that as we do this, that we are to run the play. We're not to act like Cameroon. (laughs) FIFA World Cup. Okay, you'll get that later. Um, Did not handle it well. Losing did not go well. Look it up on YouTube. It's fantastic. He says, I want you to trust that I'm doing the right thing. I've got the right play here for you. So this morning as we close out, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of covenant stuff. That's a lot of history. It's a lot of where we are. So let me just kind of go back to the very beginning and just ask the question, are you okay when God says no and puts somebody else in your place? Are you okay if God says, here's your role. I want you to stay in your lane and I want you to be okay in your lane. But God, it's not the lane I wanted. I mean, do, do you see the success of so-and-so and how good their life is? I mean, do you see where they're vacationing? My goodness, God, I've been following you for a long time, and we don't ever go there. Or, or God, their job is so easy. They just come, and I'm like, how's your work? And they're like, oh, that's great. I love it, you know. We just do everything we want. I'm just getting paid money and millions and millions of dollars, and it's just great. And look at me, God, what am, where's, why is my lane this lane? And I think we can so often kind of just, when we hear God's no, we can respond in a, in a, in a hurtful way, but also in a non-representative God way. And especially not only in those situations where it's kind of easy to see it, but hopefully we learn to be okay with it when God says no, even when it seems like a really good plan, right? When it seems like a really ideal God plan. Yeah, this is perfect. Let's just do this. And God shuts it down. We turn back and we say, okay. It wasn't me. He's got somebody else to fulfill this plan. And I'm going to trust that he is the humble king. 
himself, Jesus, the most humble king, coming to die in our place, I will trust the humble king and I will take responsibility for my role in it. Does that make sense? I will take responsibility for the thing he's tasked me to do. If it seems mediocre, okay, I'll run the mediocre play. If it's just to come in for one play and then sit, I'll do that. If it's just to go in and take up space on the field just because we need to set the distraction for the, the guy to run the other way, I'll, I'll set the distraction. I'll be the guy. If it means I got to be the guy to just go in and take the tackle, I want you to be the guy. To, I'll, I'll do that. Because my role is not about me, it's about a God who has me where he wants me. And hopefully we learn, even as a church body together, what he has called us as a church to do and what he's called us as a church to be in this community. Let me pray for us as we close. God, I wish that I could say I've run the play well all the time. God, I wish I could say that I didn't pout. (laughs) God, I wish I could say that that, uh, when I heard your plans... I just rejoiced, (laughs) and I was like, man, that's the best plan. I love that I'm not being used today. But God, that's not the truth. You know me. I've struggled with these these exact things. When you've said no, I've wondered why and tried to get around you, and instead of just listening and responding and saying, God, you are able to do whatever you want to do. I love David's words to you. And God, I pray that they would be our words as a church to you. The God, we would respond to say, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. That it is you, O Lord, who do these things, and it is a small thing in your eyes. May we know our place and respond in humility and responsibility to the God who's called us to these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.